0: My history can beat up your politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 10, A New British Strategy and the Assault on Fort Carillon. Last week, I discussed the Fort William Henry Massacre, which had become a rallying cry for the colonists. Despite their outrage, though, the colonies showed no interest in supporting any of General Loudon's military demands. Loudon and the colonies could not seem to find a way to work with each other. Meanwhile, in London, William Pitt spent most of 1757 consolidating his power and looking for a new way to prosecute a war which Britain seemed to be losing. One of Pitt's big changes was to recall General Loudon and put a new commander in charge of North America. In December 1757, Pitt decided to recall General Loudon. So in the winter, while Loudon was trying to compel colonial leaders to provide support for the 1758 campaign, an order recalling him was slowly making its way across the Atlantic. After Loudon's patron, Lord Cumberland, resigned in disgrace back in September 1757, He had no real political backing in London. Pitt's order that Loudon assault Lewisburg earlier that year had come to nothing, and Loudon continued to blame provincial politics for all of his problems. But in the end, he accomplished almost nothing militarily. Although not directly in command for the disasters at Fort Oswego and Fort William Henry, Loudon had no real success to show for his 18 months of command. His primary achievement seemed to be to set colonial opinion strongly against having any standing army among them. Most importantly, William Pitt decided that a new strategy which required colonial cooperation needed a new leader who could work with the colonies. The bad blood between Loudon and the colonial leaders had gotten to the point where such cooperation would be impossible. Loudon relinquished his command and returned to Britain as a frustrated failure. Don't feel too bad for him, though. He would go on to a command in Europe and would receive several more promotions and honors." After the Duke of Cumberland resigned in seventeen fifty seven, Sir john Leganaire became commander of all British forces. Although Leganaire was seventy seven years old and had been born and raised in France, he had been a capable British officer for his entire adult life. He worked closely with Pitt to develop a new strategy for the war. Up until that time, the British had put most of their emphasis on the war in Europe. The colonies, not only in America but worldwide, got little attention. Now, though, Pitt and Ligonier realized that Britain's real power was its navy. France could field large armies in Europe, but Britain controlled the seas. If Britain used its power to seize French colonies all over the world, France might be willing to sue for peace on terms favorable to the British. To deal with British obligations on the continent, Pitt mostly threw money at the problem. British military aid to Prussia and other military allies on the continent would tie up French forces there, while British themselves focused on France's colonies. One part of this strategy meant taking all of Canada from France and bringing North America under British rule. Pitt ordered Major General James Abercrombie, Loudoun's second-in-command, to take charge of forces in America. Abercrombie was a career officer, having purchased his first commission as an ensign at age eleven. As an adult, Abercrombie, who came from a Scottish noble family, won a seat in Parliament. His military career was respectable, though not particularly distinguished. He had commanded troops as a colonel in the War of Austrian Succession. His advancement to major general seemed more the result of political and family connections and as an administrator, rather than as a combat leader most historians dismiss him as plodding, cautious, and unimaginative. Perhaps realizing that Abercrombie could not be left to his own initiative, Pitt and Ligonier decided to appoint new field commanders themselves for the 1758 fighting season rather than let Abercrombie make recommendations. These new field commanders were young, dynamic officers, often selected over others who had more experience and seniority. They were men that Ligonier knew personally and believed had great potential as military leaders. The planners identified three military goals for 1758. These were the same goals that General Loudon had recommended, but now new leaders would have a chance to implement them. Abercrombie himself would lead the main attack on Fort Carillon at the southern tip of Lake Champlain. Fort Carillon would allow the British to begin moving forces up from the colonies into Canada. But Abercrombie was not really a field officer. He would rely on young acting Brigadier General George Augustus, Viscount Howe, to lead the army. At the time Abercrombie advanced on Fort Carillon, another army would make a renewed attempt to take Louisbourg in Nova Scotia. Taking this fort was the key to preventing French supply and reinforcements of the entire Great Lakes region. Colonel Jeffrey Amherst received promotion to general and would lead the next attempt to take Lewisburg. A young up-and-coming lieutenant colonel named James Wolfe would be second in command. The British also needed to take Fort Duquesne, which was the key to holding the Ohio Valley. Acting Brigadier General John Forbes would lead a renewed campaign to take Fort Duquesne and return the Ohio Valley to British control. Now, I'm only going to have time today to go over the attack on Fort Caroline. But it's important to remember that all of these attacks were happening simultaneously during the summer of 1758. The goal was to overwhelm the British on multiple fronts and take advantage of the superior numbers on the British side. To make all of this work, Britain could not waste time fighting with colonial leaders over the prosecution of the war. They needed lots of militia to fill out the armies necessary to fight these three campaigns. Since the beginning of the war, London and its colonies were never really on the same page. Both wanted to push back against the French and Indians, but could not agree on how to do it. General Braddock had largely ignored the colonial protests and gotten himself killed before much infighting could flare up. His successor, General Shirley, seemed to work well with the colonists, but as a result ended up falling into disfavor in London. General Loudon, of course, tried to implement the policies that the ministry wanted, but seemed to get nowhere with colonial cooperation. More important than yet another change in military leadership was Secretary Pitt's policy changes and how Britain would run the war in America. Clearly, ordering colonies to submit to military demands was not working. Rather than treat the colonies as subjects to be taxed and bullied, Pitt decided to treat them as allies. Pitt appealed to the colonists in the medium they understood best. Money. In Europe, Pitt threw money at his allies in the German states to keep France busy. In America, Pitt would throw money at the colonies in order to convince them to go on the attack in Canada. In short, Pitt had adopted the policy General Shirley had pursued before he had been recalled to London to face charges. Shirley's political reputation, now restored, he received an appointment as governor of the Bahamas and had the satisfaction of seeing his policies finally implemented in America. Pitt sent notices to the colonial governors, encouraging them to raise their own military units for use in an offensive against the French in Canada. But rather than forcing the colonies to pay for these offensives, Britain would reimburse colonial expenses for raising these armies on their own. Pitt also repealed the hated policy that gave British regular officers command authority over colonial officers of higher rank. Going forward, the colonials would be treated as partners rather than subordinates. Colonial militia would not be treated as simple adjuncts to the regular army. They would fight essentially as allied armies alongside the regulars. But more importantly, Britain was going to pick up the cost of all these armies all, and other governors were totally on board with Pitt's plans to pay for everything. A few months earlier, the colonies had balked at General Loudon's demand that they raise a force of less than 7,000 soldiers for the coming year. They complained it simply was not possible. But now that the British agreed to pay for these expenses, Massachusetts agreed to field 7,000 soldiers for the coming year all by itself. Connecticut promised another 5,000. In Virginia, where Colonel Washington could not even completely fill his one regiment with conscripts, the new money provided him with plenty of volunteers and even allowed Virginia to recruit a second regiment, more than doubling its force. Other colonies followed suit, agreeing to provide a total of more than 23,000 new men to fight the war at British expense. When combined with the regulars in America, British forces would field nearly fifty thousand armed men in 1758, compared to less than ten thousand French soldiers. Beyond that, Canada had a total French population of only fifteen to sixteen thousand men of fighting age. Abercrombie began execution of the new offensive in the spring of 1758. By June, he had established a headquarters near the ruins of Fort William Henry at the southern tip of Lake George. Abercrombie had not only the largest army in the field that year, this was the largest military force up until this time ever assembled in North America. Eight regiments of British regulars totaled about 6,000 officers and men, joined with about 10,000 militia from New York, New England, and New Jersey. This assault force would take on General Montcalm's force of roughly 3,500 French soldiers and militia at Fort Caroline. The French had built Fort Carillon about two years earlier after the outbreak of hostilities. Built by engineers in the French regular army, the five-point wood and stone fort with ample artillery provided a good defensive position against any attack. General Montcalm had used the fort as a launching point for the raids on Fort Oswego and Fort William Henry in years earlier, now with such a large British force advancing on him. The French general relied on the fort's defenses to help counter any advantage the British had in troop numbers. The aging and overweight Abercrombie relied on acting general George Howe to handle most of the field work. George Howe came from a prominent British family. His mother came from royalty in Hanover and had come to Britain along with King George I when he assumed the British crown. His father was a member of Parliament and a viscount who had received a royal appointment as governor of Barbados in the 1730s. Like many British who moved to the Caribbean, known then as the West Indies, Governor Howe got sick and died after only a couple of years. On his father's death, George, age 10, inherited his father's title as Viscount. Despite his pedigree, Howe was not particularly wealthy, at least by aristocratic standards. At age 20, he purchased a commission in the army. Howe thrived as an officer. During the War of Austrian Succession, he served as aide de camp to the Duke of Cumberland, and by the end of the war was a lieutenant colonel. At age thirty three in 1758, he was now a general and essentially in command of the largest military force North America had ever seen. Howe was also an early advocate of light infantry, soldiers who traveled light and were well adapted to fighting in the wilderness conditions of America. In early July, he made his way to Fort Carillon to lead the assault personally. In addition to the main fort, the French had an outpost in the area. The British first needed to capture or drive back the outpost before they could begin the assault on Fort Carillon itself. On July 6, General Howe led an advance force on the French camp about four miles from Fort Carillon. The British quickly routed the French, but Howe was killed early in the action dying in the arms of a Connecticut militia officer named Israel Putnam, a name you might want to remember when we get to the Revolution. The loss of such a promising young officer struck many people as a great loss. The people of Massachusetts donated a fund to pay for a memorial to General Howe in Westminster Abbey. Howe's death had an impact on the mission, but more importantly would affect the relationship of his two younger brothers the future General William Howe, and the future Admiral Richard Howe. The death of this promising young officer was a tragedy, to be sure, but the loss would not only affect the course of this battle, it would have major consequences on future events. Howe's second in command, Lieutenant Colonel John Bradstreet, immediately took charge and requested permission to assault the fort. Had Bradstreet moved quickly, he might very well have taken the fort, which still had not received reinforcements. Abercrombie, however, seemed stunned by the loss of his general and did not want to continue fighting. He denied the request to attack and decided to regroup for another day. That extra time allowed Montcalm to get his reinforcements from Fort Frontenac, set up better entrenchments, and improve other defensive measures. Even with the reinforcements, though, the 4,000 or so French soldiers seemed no match for the British force of over 16,000. Montcalm had only about 15 Indians with him at the fort. Most of his Indian allies had abandoned him after the falling out over Fort William Henry. Abercrombie's artillery probably could have forced the capitulation of the fort within days. I say probably because Abercrombie decided to go with a different plan of attack. Abercrombie was convinced that the fort's defenses did not necessitate the difficult, and time-consuming task of entrenching artillery. Rather, he could simply use his infantry to storm the fort. The day after Howe's death, July 7th, Abercrombie sent scouts out to get a better idea of the enemy defenses. That night, he held a council of war to discuss options. But rather than letting all the officers give input, Abercrombie limited debate to whether they should use three lines of attack or four. He did not allow any consideration of mounting artillery to use against the French lines or even as support for the infantry. The general had simply decided that artillery would be too much trouble and would take too much time to mount. The following day, July 8th, a group of skirmishers led by his new second-in-command, Colonel Thomas Gage, who we last met in Episode 5 at the Battle of the Monongahela and another name you're going to want to remember, took the field. They were accompanied by Rogers Rangers and a group of Massachusetts infantry, which used skirmishing techniques to drive the French pickets back into their main lines. Next, eight battalions of British regulars advanced on the fort. In truth, the British never even got near the fort. General Montcalm deployed most of his forces on Rattlesnake Hill, which stood between the fort and the attacking British. The French had entrenched the hill, and laid down branches and other impediments designed to break up the British line during the advance. The impediments worked as the British regulars got caught up in the debris. As they slowly tried to advance over the impediments, the French began to mow them down. While the regulars stood and died bravely, they nevertheless died without inflicting much damage on the French. Abercrombie was directing the assault from more than a mile away, He ordered the assault to continue without seeing firsthand the resulting carnage. In the afternoon, several regiments of militia also tried to storm the French defenses and suffered massive losses as well. One of the militia officers involved in this assault was a major from Massachusetts named Artemis Ward. Again, a name you may want to remember when we get into the Revolution. By the end of the day, about 2,500 British soldiers, mostly regulars, lay dead or wounded, making it the bloodiest day of battle in North America until the American Civil War. After seeing these losses, Abercrombie did not decide to change his plan of attack to use his artillery, but rather decided to retreat. He feared a possible counterattack from a French force that was still only about one fourth the size of his. The order to retreat spread panic and confusion among the British, who fled chaotically down Lake George, back to the base near the ruins of Fort William Henry. After such an embarrassing loss, most officers and men still wanted to return and use artillery to take the fort properly. Another officer, whose name you may want to remember, Captain Charles Lee of the 44th Foot, wrote a letter home. These proceedings must undoubtedly appear most astonishingly absurd to people who were at a distance, but they were still more glaringly so to us who were on the spot there was one hill in particular which seemed to offer itself as an ally to us. It immediately commanded the lines from hence two small pieces of cannon well planted, must have drove the French in a very short time from their breastwork. But notwithstanding, some of our cannon was brought up and in readiness. This was never thought of, which, one would imagine, must have occurred to any blockhead who was not absolutely so far sunk in idiotism as to be obliged to wear a bib and bells. Abercrombie, however, overruled his junior officers and decided that they had done enough fighting. He would not attempt any further offensive against Fort Caroline. Despite the overwhelming numbers and an obvious plan of attack, Fort Carillon would remain the year's greatest failure. It would permanently tarnish Abercrombie's reputation and would lead to his replacement later that year. Like most recalled but well-connected British generals, Abercrombie would be promoted several more times. He would also continue to serve as a Member of Parliament, but would never again command troops in the field. Next week, the British finally began to turn things around with the fall of Louisbourg and Frontenac, as well as the Treaty of Easton.